Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Morning, everyone. How we doing? Wow. Okay. All right. That felt pre-planned a little bit, and I appreciate it a lot. If we could all summon that energy, that would be great. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and welcome to winter, apparently, everybody. Um, and uh, we're glad you're joining us either here or online. Uh, before we really, really jump uh, into everything, and obviously we're starting a brand new series uh, in, the, uh, in the book of Titus, I want to take a second and honor uh, my friend Jim. Um, Pastor Jeff mentioned before uh, Jim McClellan passed away last night, and I know many of you don't know Jim, um, but, but I did, and Jim was my friend, and so you have to listen to me talk about him. Um, and uh, Jim, actually, when I got here, um, he was on our executive board. So as I was walking through the pastoral search process, uh, Jim was one of my kind of last steps um, that I had to take as I was going through the interview. And I met Jim, and um, one of the things that I love about Jim is that he, regardless of who you are, your stature, whatever, he was going to tell you the truth. Um, and it uh, didn't matter um, what it was, uh, he was going to tell you exactly what it is that, that he believed um, and wasn't going to apologize for it. But that being said, Jim also was a man who was more than willing to sit across from you and listen to what you had to say as well. Um, and so I really, really uh, appreciated Jim uh, be, because of that, because Jim and I, we did not agree on all things philosophically regarding how the church should be run uh, in a modern context, what church should look like, what the church should be doing, all of that stuff. Um, but really when it came down to it, um, our theology was the same. Our doctrine was the same. What it is that we believed about God was the same. And so because of that, we could disagree. And then at the end of that disagreement, uh, we would say, all right, we'll see you on Sunday. And that would really be uh, the end of it. Actually, one of my favorite stories with Jim really does kind of embody that. Um, I got an email from Jim. Uh, he was an avid emailer. We would go back and forth with our uh, agreements or disagreements, whatever they would be. And he said, Pastor, can I come in? I have, um, I have some things that I want you to know about, which really that's congregational speak for. I have some complaints that I want you to fix, right? Um, and so uh, I was like, yeah, sure, Jim, come on in. So he comes in and he says, Pastor, well, let's just get to it. I was like, yeah, Jim, let me, tell, me, tell me what you're thinking, man. Um, and he opens up his coat pocket and pulls out a list about the size of a CVS receipt. And uh, he just starts going to town, man. And one after the other, we're talking through it. And we're having good dialogue uh, about it with one another. Um, and he said, all right, I got one more. He's like, all right, what is it, Jim? Let's, let's talk through it. He's like, well... You know I don't like the music, but that's not going to change. So let's just call it a day. I'll see you on Sunday. I was like, "All right, Jim, sounds good. We'll we'll see you on Sunday, man." Um, and really does that 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 kind of embodies Jim. And the cool thing about it is 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 that even as we're opening up into this book of Titus, he really does embody the book of Titus. Um, Jeff and I were actually talking before we found out Jim passed away. That man, Jim. When we knew he was in the hospital, we thought, man, he would love this series because Titus is a little spicy. Um, Titus uh, isn't afraid to, to tell you the truth in this book, but also um, understands the cultural context in which it is serving. Um, and so uh, because of that, uh, this, this series, um, we hope to uh, remind ourselves of our friend Jim who, uh, who passed away last night. Um, so 
I'm getting emotional. Um, let's, uh, let's pray those emotions right out of this place, um, and <laughs> then we'll continue on our message. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, uh, God, we're thankful for, for Jim, thankful for his life, um, thankful for his service to our church, and thankful uh, even more than that, that he, uh, he embodied his belief, that um, he had a, a, a set of beliefs, and because of that, he acted them out. He walked them along. Um, and so, God, uh, I know he's in glory with you. I know that um, he's in a much better place than, than here. Um, but, Father, we do pray for Nelda, um, his wife. We pray for their kids um, as they go through the grieving process. Um, and even as some of them are walking through COVID as well, I pray that you would heal their, heal their bodies, but also heal their hearts uh, amid loss, Father. So we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. So today, Titus, we're going to be in Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip them open, you can click them open. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Actually, in a lot of it, we're going to get to Scripture because we got to figure out some context for the book uh, of Titus because it's a very, very uh, contextually heavy book. We have to understand why it was written and to whom it was written to in order to, full, to pull out the full meaning from the book of Titus. So today, I just want you to know, one, we started things off kind of sad. That means there's no energy in the room right now. And two, uh, we're going to the classroom for a little bit. So for about 15 minutes or so, we got to get some context for what it is that we, that we are learning about, for who it is that Paul is writing to, for where it is that Paul is writing to. And so I need you to do me a favor. I need you to lean in a little bit. I know some of you guys had that coffee uh, that hasn't kicked in yet, or that donut that you're crashing from afterwards. So stay with me. We're going to get to the preach here um, in, uh, in just, just a little bit. Um, so the book of Titus is near the back of your Bible. It's one of the last couple uh, books in your Bible. And we're going to be in the book of Titus until December. So we're going to do our best to hit every single verse in the book of Titus. We will read them all. That doesn't mean we have time to focus on, on each and every one of them. But, but really the context of the book of Titus, we have to be able to understand this because you could pluck the book of Titus from the ancient world from 63, 64 AD from when it was written and give it to the American church today and there would be so many similarities that you would not think anything different of it. So before we get into that, I want you to think about the idea, I want you to think about the world in which you currently live. Knowing that, hey, we're going to talk about the context is, being, is really similar to America, I want you to think about the context in which you currently live. The world you woke up in, the news outlets that you listen to, whether that be Fox News or CNN or some other one or Facebook or the worst news outlet in the world, Twitter, right? Wherever it is that you land, okay, think about the news that you woke up to. Because really, the culture in which we live now is incredibly divisive. The culture in which we live has become more and more black and white today than it has ever been in the course of American history even. Actually, I was back, back during the, the election season. It was either October or November, somewhere around there of last year. Um, I remember looking at a couple of graphs that I thought were fascinating. And these graphs showed uh, the two major political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. And it showed the overlap that the two parties have regarding what it is that they both 
believed. And so back in the 80s, kind of the Reagan administration, that sort of thing, there was a lot of overlap. There was red on one side, right? There was blue on the other side. But the, the majority of that graph was purple regarding the overlap that people saw. Okay? Now, fast forward to 2020 in that election, those two bell curves for the Republicans and Democrats had moved. They had shifted. And so there is less overlap. There is less purple on those graphs today than there ever has been before. And the reason I bring that up is because for, for whatever reason, now more than ever, is that we have bought into the idea that if people could somehow adhere to my worldview, then the world would be okay. Like, the, like we would reach utopia if, if, you know, everybody was just a Republican or everybody was just a Democrat or whatever it would be. So one of the things that I do want to warn you as we're getting into this is I want to warn you against the idea that I am preaching to somebody else, okay? Because oftentimes what can happen in series like this or when we're talking about, hey, identity, whatever it may be, is that you think to yourself, if you're a Republican sitting out there, you think to yourself, oh, this is about Democrats. Or if you're a Democrat sitting out there, you think, oh, this is about Republicans. Or if you're a libertarian sitting out there, you're like, this is about everybody and everybody's jacked up, right? Those libertarians, they do what they want. Okay, so I want to caution you, though, against that, that thinking about this is about somebody else. This is about all of us, and this is about the Western church in general. But somewhere along the line, we've bought into the, the belief that if you don't believe exactly what it is that everybody else believes, or, or if, if somebody doesn't believe exactly what it is that you believe, that you're not only wrong, but you're also against me. You have also become my enemy. And that's a lie. That is, that is absolutely not true. That's one of the biggest lies our culture is bought into, and it's sad. But beyond that, we've also bought into the idea that, that like I said, if everyone would, would adhere to my worldview, then everything would be okay. We bought into the idea, really, that, that people are, are a means to an end for us, boiled down to kind of a, a vote on a ballot in November in the direction of my worldview is a positive direction, regardless of their humanity, regardless of who they are, regardless of their upbringing, regardless of their own worldview. And going back to my friend Jim, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about Jim, that he had his worldview, he had his beliefs, he understood where he stood. But that being said, if somebody else came at it from a different direction, he was more than willing to stop and listen and be respectful. He may still call you wrong at the end of the conversation, but he was at least willing to listen. But we think if we could just get everyone into my way of thinking that we would be set, to, that we would be set. And even to take things one step further in our culture, much like we've talked about the last couple of weeks, we're going over a series on, on money and generosity and that sort of thing, that we think if, if, hey, if I can just get a little bit more of X, I would be happy. If I can get a little bit more money, if I can get a little bit less fat on my body, if I can be a little bit more trained, whatever it is that you feel like you want to do, then, then I could be elevated, I can be better, and then my little kingdom that I am creating for myself, this you know, Anderson kingdom or fill in your last name kingdom for yourself, that, that, that man, I can, I can be better. I can be better than everyone else. We can be kind of masters of our own domain, which we also know in our heads is not true, for those of you who would call yourself a Christian. But for some reason, we can't get beyond that idea that if I could just be better, if I could just do X, if I could just have X, that I would be better. We spend time and time again trying to build those own little kingdoms with our own worldview. And once we accomplish those things, then I'll just, then after that, I'll be happy. And there's almost an arrogance surrounding it once you do achieve 
those type of things. But today, though, and for the next few weeks, we're going to compare our worldview to the world that Titus finds himself in. Titus finds himself on a small island off the coast of Greece, not Italy, Greece, um, called Crete. This is where the term Cretan comes from. Okay? And very much so, the, the people of Crete are going to describe, I mean, they are described as Cretans by Paul in this book. But Titus really is doing, he's doing ministry with people who not only believe that the, the Cretans, they do believe that they are descendants of God, but also with people in the church that think if they can wage a, a culture war against the Cretans, then they'll be happy that everything will be hunky-dory, and it simply is not the case. The book of Titus is, is part of three books, and this is, we're leaning into the classroom right now. The book of Titus is called the three, three books called the pastoral epistles. Okay, if you're new to church, epistle simply means letter. Okay, the pastoral ep- epistles are Titus and First and Second Timothy, those three. So I would encourage you, if you do read through the book of Titus, man, read through First and Second Timothy as well. There's tons of overlap between those couple books, okay? Because Paul was writing to this young leader in the church, this new pastor in the church, and he's saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you need to be able to, to understand, okay? All three of these letters, really, First and Second Timothy and, and Titus, it's, it's from the point of view of an old man at the close of his ministry, Paul, an old man at the close of his ministry, and he's concerned for his successors in the pastorate. He's concerned that, hey, are these guys going to hold fast to the doctrine that we have passed down? Are they going to hold fast to the beliefs of the gospel that, that, that the entire church really has revolved around since then? And so there's a bunch of crucial things that they talk about, right? Church organization. They talk about church discipline. They talk about uh, such matters like, like appointment of elders and deacons, the opposition of rebellious members or, or false teachers in the church, and the maintenance of, of doctrinal purity, Right, making sure that no other false doctrine gets into the church. And so Paul was written to encourage Titus, and we call it a letter to a leader because that really is who Titus was. And we want to focus on this idea of, of bringing leaders up in our church. Okay, bringing leaders in and up in our church to provide leadership. So it's not just to people who are aspiring to be pastors or people who want to be a deacon or people who want to be on a board or whatever it may be. I would say all of this is true for all people who call themselves Christians. That all of us, because of the fact that we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to be able to serve in different ways, that we are now all leaders in the church. And so all of these things need to be true. Actually, our entire structure as a church, specifically ours, but most churches, revolve around this very principle revolve around the idea that, that, that the, the Holy Spirit has, has gifted us, spiritually gifted us with all of these different things to allow us to lead. And so our structure depends on lay leaders living out their faith in a way that's going to help us create more disciples. We talked about this a couple months ago. Disciples make disciples, right? That would be our goal. If you're new here, that's our goal. We want to turn you into a disciple. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to try to say, oh, our goal is just for you to come hang out with us and eat our food. Like that's not our goal here as a church. Our goal is to create disciples, And so the ministry continues to move forward because disciples make disciples make disciples. So we, of course, get an opportunity now to look at a disciple who had created another disciple. Paul, 
who had turned Titus into his disciple. And so we know a little bit about Titus from some of his other epistles. Titus is a Gentile convert. We hear about that in, um, in Galatians chapter 2. We actually hear a lot about, about Titus in Galatians. Okay? He served and traveled with the Apostle Paul. That's also in chapter 2. But he had also functioned as kind of a faithful emissary to the church in Corinth as well. We read a little bit about him in 2 Corinthians last week. Okay? 2 Corinthians 7 and 8 is where we hear a little bit about who Titus is. And so like I said, this letter was written around 63, 64 AD, sometime that after they had left Timothy behind in Ephesus. Okay? So this letter is distinctly different. Stay with me. I know a classroom, you guys are like, he's getting into the lecture and that sort of thing. It'll be a quiz at the end, guys, so pay attention, take notes. Okay, so right after, like, this takes place sometime after Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus, excuse me, the letter to the Ephesian church, Ephesus, okay? But this letter is different because while those other letters, Ephesians, Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Thessalonians, all of those are written to churches, this letter is not written to the church in Crete. Besides that, the naming of like, go, turn to the book of Cretans, right? That's not a, great, not a great look. But it's not written to the church in Crete. It's written to Titus specifically who was ministering in Crete. So it's a whole lot different than, than the actual church. But the time and place of the writing, simply it's not known besides those couple dates. So not just the pastoral epistles, but specifically the, 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 pa- the purpose of the epistle to Titus was to instruct him about what it is that he should do and teach to those Cretan churches. So we have a young buck named Titus. He's serving in Crete. But in order to get full context of what Titus is doing, we got to understand Cretan culture at this point. We have to understand why it is that this letter is being written. Okay, so the Cretans, like I said, they're, they're off the coast of Greek or Greece, so they were heavily influenced by Greek gods. Think back to all of your uh, Greek mythology, right, whenever it is that you studied that in school. Think about all of the Greek gods you know, okay? Let's list them. Zeus, and then all the other ones, right? Like, like, though <laughs> that is who they 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 believed in and beyond that they believed that that those gods all were born on the island of crete so they believed that they had like god blood running through their veins if they were going to be gods like you had to be born on crete but beyond that they had an upside down theology our theology really is top down Meaning that God is up here, the rest of us are below, but he sent his son to raise us up, right? So we have a top-down sort of theology. The Cretans did not have that type of theology. They had a bottom-up theology, meaning that the gods were all born as human beings. And they had to be born in Crete, but then beyond that, based on the service that they did for the gods, they could then be elevated to being a god as well. So their belief in Zeus was that he was born, on a, born as a man on the island of Crete, and that dude slowly elevate him, elevated himself to godship. But the problem was, is that Zeus was not a good dude. Zeus was not a good god at all. If you can recall any of your stories from the Greek mythology, Zeus was actually terrible, okay? Yeah, he was this like big, powerful dude with lightning bolts and that sort of thing, but he was a terrible, terrible person. And Crete was the central place of worship for this. And, and so the mythology was so entrenched in this Cretan culture that, that the churches in Paul's day were integrating their understanding of the Christian God, Yahweh, okay, who we worship today, with, with these other gods, specifically with, 
with Zeus. And so they were melding the two. And this is bad news, especially in light of kind of this man-become-God figure that Zeus was. Okay, Zeus, it's actually recorded that Zeus, uh, he, he loved to seduce women by any means necessary. Okay, this is like who Zeus was as a dude. Like you look at everything that Zeus did, he's not, a, like he, he seduced women and he lied. Like that's who the God of, that's who Zeus was and that's who the Cretans were, were doing their best to like worship this guy and become this guy. Once Zeus, he, he assumed the form of a woman's husband just so he could get her in bed. Like that's, and then she caught him and then he decided to lie about it, right? Like, like that's who these people are worshiping. So in a nutshell, Zeus is a liar. Zeus is a womanizer and the Cretans immortalized him for this. That's the culture that Titus is dealing with here. That's the culture that Titus is going to be put forth into, They took pride in his shady character. They took pride in his underhanded sort of ways. So aware of the context, Paul, he sets out to refute uh, the idea that the Christian God was cast in the image of Zeus or any lowercase g God at all for that matter. He wanted to make it crystal clear that God revealed himself in Jesus and is completely and totally different than Zeus. And the problem is, though, is that Zeus actually in this is not the issue. He's not the issue at all. It's the people of Crete, of Crete, of Crete, who were immortalizing him. The people themselves were such lying, indulgent, sexually promiscuous bunch of people that Crete became like proverbial for immorality in the ancient world. To be a Cretizo, the Greek word Cretizo, meant to be a liar, a Cretan meant to be a liar. Like, we even still use that today. I mean, I'm sure the young, hip kids don't use, like, oh, stop being a Cretan today. But, but like, your mom or dad probably called you a Cretan once or twice in your life. Like, and you understood the context. This is from the people of Crete and what it was that they were known for. On top of that, their men were known for being violent. They served as mercenary soldiers. So, hey, you needed to off somebody for hire. You go talk to them. You don't talk to the mob, right, just to the highest bidder. Okay, and their women, they epitomize something called the new Roman woman. And so these wealthy, kind of like emancipated women, they enjoyed a greater deal of privileges while putting down their Greek counterparts. The whole society was completely and, ja- completely and totally jacked up. And the problem is, is that being a follower of Jesus means progressively becoming more and more like Jesus, right? That's what, that's what this idea of being a disciple is. Like, I'm be, I am a disciple, but I'm becoming more and more of a disciple as I become more and more like Jesus. Like, that's what the goal is, not the, the image of the deity of the day. But Paul, he gets this report that, that Cretan Christians were looking more like Zeus than Jesus, that's obviously a problem. And so to make matters worse, these young churches had come under this destructive teaching of some so-called Christian leaders. It's actually very familiar to the leaders that we have coming to teach in the book of Galatians. So we have these Jewish, Christian, Cretan leaders. Yeah, there's a whole lot, of, whole lot of ways to describe those people who were teaching the people in the church They said, hey, look, yes, you can love Jesus, but also you got to be circumcised in order to go to heaven. And also it's okay to do whatever it is that you want to do. That's not good. 
That's not healthy. That's a long way from what we studied in the book of Galatians that last year with Jesus plus nothing. Okay, their belief, what Paul was saying is, hey, look, whatever it is that you believe, you need to act out. I would venture to say the single largest problem in the Christian church today is that. That we say we believe something and we aren't willing to actually act it out. So when I say that this letter to Titus could be cherry-picked from, from 63 AD to today, I'm not joking. The things that Paul says in here are incredibly clear. And so at this point, the gospel to these people, these, these non-believers, is, is looking pretty unattractive. Okay, Because you have these people in the church who are doing whatever it is that they want to do. Beyond that, the people and the false teachers in the church are saying, yeah, you can go to heaven, but you also have to get circumcised. And then beyond that, even after those things, they're like, hey, yeah, but do whatever you want. Why would anybody want to be a part of that gospel message? Why would anybody want to worship a God like that? Because the teachers were still saying, hey, look, yeah, God is before us. God is ahead of us. Jesus came and died on the cross for us. And so in their view, they're like, hold up, I never get to be God. I never get to be God. I, I'm stuck down here, but what, I want to get up here, though. And then beyond that, there was no transformation in those people's lives at all in the Cretan churches. So why is it that, that anybody would want to be a part of that gospel? It wasn't compelling. It wasn't interesting to them. It offered no hope to them whatsoever. All it offered was pain, literally. So we get this urgent letter then instructing Titus on what it is that he's supposed to do. He's saying, hey, Titus, you need a straight up clean house because people are doing and saying things that do not line up with the things that they believe. Welcome to America. Welcome to Christianity, specifically in the West. It's the largest plague that we currently have. And so he said, hey, clean up house. Paul tells them, hey, look, you need to, you need to appoint some shepherd-like men. They're called elders. You need to take care of that. They're going to serve and protect young churches, keep right doctrine protected at that point. And they're supposed to teach believers about the good news of Jesus, supposed to kind of model the, the kind, integrity, uh, gospel ethic that ran completely and totally contrary to the, uh, the Cretan value system. Beyond that, Titus, he's supposed to rebuke and kick out all of those false teachers. So, hey, if your doctrine is bad, get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. And so he was, his job was to purge these churches of evil, in short. Like, Titus was not coming with, like, a gentle word and a hug. He was speaking softly and carrying a big stick, right? Like that's, that's what it was he was supposed to do. So, so, Paul, or so Titus, he needs to straighten out the Christians who are giving the gospel a bad reputation. Paul says that, that the gospel belief should result in a new kind of household where older men and older women uh, should be models of integrity and self-control for the younger believers. And older believers in the church, this is your responsibility still. To model this for younger Christians. The women should reject the alluring pull of this new Roman woman in favor of faithfulness, in favor of sobriety. Men, they were supposed to turn aside from greed, supposed to turn aside from injustice and violence, and they were supposed to be productive, helpful citizens of society. Even the slaves, as they were part of the households, man, he talks about this, and so it's going to get, man, we're going to feel a little uncomfortable in a couple of weeks when we talk through this. 
but slaves as part of the household. They should honor their masters and refuse to participate in some of these slave rebellions to prevent any bad-mouthing of the gospel at the time. They were to live in a way that made Jesus compelling to the watching world. And so as we're thinking about this and as we're going through the book of Titus, I want you to continuously go back to are you personally in your life making the gospel compelling to the watching world? And I would venture to say that starts with belief. Because Paul is going to set out here and remind him that you don't need to retreat from culture in order for the gospel to be compelling. Actually, don't retreat from culture to make the gospel compelling. Don't become a monk and go hide in the hills because no one's ever going to find out about the good news if you do that. But also Paul is going to tell them, hey, also don't wage a culture war against them because that also doesn't make the gospel compelling. So also don't do that. If you are screaming about how everybody else is going to hell, that is not a compelling gospel. So Paul wants people to train themselves, literally be, the word means educate themselves on how to live out a kind of spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings and the ethics of Jesus in the world. And so it's our responsibility then to live out this counter-cultural gospel in reliance on the spirit. That's what's compelling. A third avenue. Not a democratic avenue, not a republican avenue, a third avenue that I would venture to say shouldn't be political at all. A third avenue. And as you live this out, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your oikos is what we would call that, would come to understand how compelling that gospel is. You'll be doing redemptive theology meaning that, that people would come to understand who Jesus is. They would come to understand that they can be redeemed through Jesus Christ because of their understanding of Jesus. So with all of that, with all of that context, we should probably read some Bible at some point this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. So as we're reading this, remember, Paul is juxtaposing here God and Zeus. He is going to be making comparisons in here. He never says the name Zeus, but the way that he writes, see if you can pick him out as we're walking through it, even in the first four verses. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. English teachers, you're freaking out because that's one massive run-on sentence that we just read through right there. Okay, but that being said, Paul notes a couple different things in there that now that you understand, oh, the, the, the cultural context that he is writing to, he is, he is doing his best to defend God, Yahweh, God, against those who believe that Zeus is a better way of thinking. Okay, Paul's introduction here is vastly different than the majority of his epistles. Go back and read Ephesians or Galatians. Paul, Paul stresses the idea of being a bondservant of Jesus Christ in all of those. Okay? And he does here as well. But note what it is that Paul puts, puts quite a bit more weight in this introduction towards God. God the Father. 
Okay? He notes that God, and then he was like in parentheses, hey, by the way, does not lie, right? Okay, now if you were to read that and not, uh, not understand the context in which he's writing, obviously then you're like, oh yeah, of course, God, he doesn't lie. It's strange though to have that for no reason. It doesn't seem like it fits. Oh wait, Zeus who does lie, right? So our God who does not lie, and then beyond that, he goes on to talk about that, hey, God who existed before time, right? So God who always was, Zeus, who did not exist before time, who was born on Crete and eventually became a God. Okay, Paul is establishing his bottom-up theology here. He's saying, hey, look, God is bigger than Zeus. He's bigger than you. He does not lie. He is not good. If you are going to emulate somebody, salvation is through Jesus Christ towards God the Father, and that's our goal. That's where Paul was going through the, for, for, for the entirety of the book of Titus. He is refuting the idea that other gods can even hold a candle to capital G, God. And it's fascinating to me to be able to read through some of those things. He's saying it doesn't matter what it is that your worldview is. It doesn't matter who it is that you believe. If it's apart from God who has always existed and Jesus who is going to get you to heaven, it does not matter. And I'll probably get, you know, a lot of head nods about this next one, that, that the overarching theme in the book of Titus is that if you believe what is right, you will act in what is right. Right? Yep, got some head nods, knew it. Okay, and some of you even said amen under your breath because you're scared to do that in a Baptist church. Like, I don't want to disrupt anything, you know what I mean? Like, I get that. But most of us would agree with this, that right life, right, like right belief leads to right living. But in the church and in the world today, we do not see this in action. Or if we do, it is very, very minuscule when we do. Like just like last week, I talked about the idea that right belief produces right fruit. Okay, overall, belief in general produces fruit. Whether or not that fruit is good or not remains to be seen. So whatever it is that you believe really is the things that you do. So I would venture to say if you don't know what it is you believe, look at what you do and trace it backwards. You can see what it is that you believe. It is not knowledge. Belief and knowledge are two different things. The Bible even says that demons know who God is and shudder. Okay, that does not mean that demons are going to heaven. They just simply know who he is. In the same way for us, that, that if we are to believe something, true belief, it produces fruit in our lives. So if you, want to, if, if you want to produce right fruit, good fruit, fruit that is going to honor God, you have to make sure that your belief system is correct to start. And that's what Paul spends the majority of this letter talking to Titus about. Saying, hey, look, this is what it is that is true. This is what it is that, that you need to believe. And as you believe that and you teach other people that, fruit is going to be bore. Bear, barren? Bared. Fruit will come. But the reality is, is when this happens, the gospel then becomes compelling. That gospel that we talked about before, that Jesus gospel that, that, that was compelling in the first century when Jesus walked the earth. Because he's the one who paints the compelling gospel in, in the first place. The same Jesus that when a woman was about to be stoned to death for, for her promiscuity, he didn't grab a rock, but he also didn't let her off the hook. 
Okay? He looked around, or he told her to look around. He said, hey, where are those people who, who, who persecute you now? And they had all gone, grace, right? Like they all got dismissed because of whatever Jesus wrote in the dirt next to her. And then what does he say to her? Hey, go and sin no more. Truth, right? Grace and truth. A compelling gospel, a third way. Not all grace and not all truth. Or the same with, with the woman who had been bleeding for years and, and she's a social outcast and she just thinks to herself, hey, look, if I, if I can just touch the robe of Jesus, if I can just get close enough to touch his robe, then I'll be healed. And, and she comes close and Jesus doesn't cower away. She, she touches his robe and he, it says he, power, he felt power leave from his body and she was completely and totally healed, a social outcast who Jesus gave complete and total grace to because he knew it wasn't her fault from the get-go, right? A third way, a different way, a countercultural way. Or beyond that, when Jesus went and sat with a woman at a well, it was about noontime, and she was a Samaritan woman, and he was a Jewish man, and that wasn't okay. And so Jesus said, hey, look, let me, let me give you the water, this living water that it is that you're searching for. And then beyond that, he said, hey, go and sin no more. Like, don't sin. He made her very aware uh, of her sin in her life. So he offered her the grace, the living water, and at the same time offered her the truth in her life and said, hey, you need to repent of what you're doing and go change your life. A third way, a compelling gospel. That's the gospel that we're called to live. That's the gospel that Paul is encouraging Titus to teach to the Cretan church. The largest plague in the church today is not being ill-informed to the gospel, but simply not living out the beliefs that, they say, that we say that we hold. Y'all are smart enough. You guys know enough about Jesus, I promise. You, know more, you all know more about Jesus now than anybody else in the history of Christendom did apart from the apostles. It's not a knowledge issue. It's a belief issue. It's an acting out correctly issue. And I would venture to say that, that should we simply do what we say we believe, the gospel will be just as compelling today as it was back in the first century. It's not once you get more knowledge or once you read through the Bible in a year or once you start journaling or once whatever. It's when you actually start putting feet to what it is that you say you believe. And so as we frame this, this entire message, as we frame this entire series, that's what I want us to look through is, is where is it that you need to tighten up your right, your right living to better match your correct belief, right? And that's for those of you who have been Christians for a long time. If you say you believe this, I want you to look at your life and say, okay, where is it that I need to live more according to my beliefs, so if you've been a Christian for longer than a year, that's where you need to land. If you haven't, if you are new to faith, maybe you're going to come to faith for the first time today. I don't know. You need to focus on what right beliefs are there. How do I get my doctrine right? How do I make sure that I understand what it is the Bible says and that as I understand that and as I believe it, then it gets moved into action. So it doesn't matter where you are on the spectrum. You could, you could be, uh, you know, not a believer right now or you could have been a believer for the last 70 years. I don't care. The book of Titus has something for you. And you need to figure it out and you need to, to, to just think to yourself, where is it in my life that I need to, 
that I need to respond to this? Is it right belief or is it right living? And the gospel or the epistle to Titus is going to speak to speak to all of these things. I'm incredibly excited to dig deeper into it. Amen, church? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, I'm thankful for, for your church. I'm thankful for um, your letter to Titus. And um, God, I'm just thankful for, for the fact that you gave us your word. You gave us right belief at, at our fingertips. That we have your words. That we get the opportunity to dive into what it is that you say that we should believe. And God, I pray that as we believe those things that we would move to living out those things. That it wouldn't be platitudes on a Sunday. It wouldn't simply just be head knowledge, God. It would be enacting those things in our lives every single day. So God, I pray that you would put those realizations in our, in our mind. That we'd be able to be a little bit introspective and recognize that hey, I'm falling short here, or maybe it's simply I don't understand this doctrine yet. I don't know what I believe. And so if that's you, I pray that, man, you would dig into your Bible, you would dig into commentaries, you would dig into prayer, dig into talking with other, other believers about the text, whatever it may be. But God, I pray that we would be a church that would not be just simply stagnant and okay with knowledge of the Bible, but we would strive for greater belief as we strive for greater living towards you. And Father, if there's those here who have not yet said yes to you before, or maybe they, they need to say yes again, that they would pray along with me as a simple profession of faith and say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, that I need that grace that you've talked about to cover my sins. Thank you for that grace. Because B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me, the living water that he offers. And C, that I would choose to follow you every single day. That my actions would indeed line up with my beliefs. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.